Welcome to episode 280 of Live Happy Now. This is Paula Phelps, and this week we're going to learn how we can all become a little bit kinder. There's no question that our world needs more kindness right now, which is why this week we're talking to Houston Kraft, author of the new book, Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk, and act in kindness. He's here today to talk about the gap between our belief in kindness and our ability to practice it. He'll also tell us what new skills we need to acquire to better practice kindness and what we can do to turn our intentions into actions. Houston, welcome to Live Happy Now. Thanks, Paula. Excited to be here. You're talking about a topic that I don't think we can get enough of, especially right now, and that is kindness. So in reading your book, you have been interested in kindness for a long time, and you have a great story that led you to that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got on this path? Yeah, you know, I feel lucky. I was introduced to kindness from a pretty young age. I had two amazing parents who were super supportive and some incredible educators in my life who have redirected the trajectory of my existence. But one of the more profound, I suppose, moments that led me down this path of deep kindness, as the book talks about, was early on in, in my speaking career. I was on a plane and I met this woman who wanted to have a conversation in spite of all the signs I gave her that I didn't. <laughs> and to make semi-long story a little bit shorter, she basically shared with me when I shared with her that I worked in schools, I talked about kindness for my job. She made it very evident that she believed kindness was incredibly important. And without me prompting proof, she gave me some that she had been on an airplane three years before our meeting. And the only reason she was on the plane was because she'd gotten a phone call uh, that her dad was on his way to the hospital. And they didn't really know what was going on with him, but she lived a few states away. So she had to get on a plane to go and see him. And literally as her plane is about to take off to go and visit him, she found out that he, he passed away. So she's on this plane to go and see her dad when she learns that she's lost him. And, and now she has to sit next to strangers for three hours until she arrives at the new airport, a foreign airport, and she walks off the plane and crumbles to the ground and is crying. And I'm listening to her retell me this story. And of course, I'm moved by it. And what she said next is really what has shaped a, a big part of my trajectory, which is, she goes, Houston, I sat in the airport for two hours, crying on one of the worst days of my life. And as I sat there, if I had to guess, there's probably 3,000 people in that airport around me, right? Going to their planes or getting off their planes. She goes, Houston, two hours, 3,000 people and not one. Not a single person stopped. She looks at me, she goes, you have no idea how much I could use an act of kindness that day. It's been 10 years and I've never seen Helga again. But I think about that story at this point in my life every day. Partially because it is one of those uncomfortable stories that forces you to self-confront the question, like, would I have stopped? Not only on a personal level is that a challenging question, but on the societal level, like the 3,000 people that walked by her, if you were to ask them, do you believe in kindness? My guess is all of them would say yes. And yet 3,000 people walked by. And I think one of the things that struck me as I read that story, and for anyone that reads the book, and you told it very well, but in the book, it really, man, you really feel your reaction and you really feel her pain in the way that you tell that story. And when I read it in the book, I want to think, well, I, of course I would have stopped. Of course I would have gone and done something. And as you said, we all say, yeah, I'm a kind person. But then there is that little question that pops up. It's like, would I really? If I'm late for a flight, if I'm trying to rush from one place to another, how many people have I overlooked who needed some kindness, but I was so focused on what I had to get done? 
And I think I love that story because it mm-hmm. really does, it's a soul check, you know, kind of have to like, wow, okay, I want to say uh-huh. I wouldn't respond that way, but is that true? Yeah, you know, one of my studies that's at least famous in the compassion or kindness world is from the 70s at Princeton Theological Seminary School. And they took one group of students over into a building and, and they said, hey, you're going to have some time to prepare a practice sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a story of stopping to help strangers in need. And they told the other half of this group of students, like, hey, you're going to go give a speech in a little while on job opportunities in the seminary field. Two pretty different kinds of talks, one an impassioned sermon and the other one to talk about jobs. In between building A, where they were preparing for this talk, and building B, where they were supposed to go and deliver it, the researchers intentionally planted someone in the middle who was obviously in need, right, doubled over in pain, because they were curious, would the people who were actively thinking about compassion, the one who were literally about to go tell a story about stopping to help strangers in need, would they be more likely to stop and help this stranger in need? And of course, the answer is no. The biggest determining factor as to whether or not someone stopped was how much of in a rush they felt like they were in, how much time they felt like they had to get from building A to building B. And my soul check is, how often do I feel like I'm in a rush between building A and building B? How often do I feel busy in my life? And as a result of that, how many times have I said I believed in kindness, but haven't made time for the practice of it? Yeah, I think that's something all of us can kind of go, ooh, yeah, I can come up with a couple instances here. You know, another thing that's interesting, I've got a lot I want to ask you about the book, but another thing that I find interesting about your story is that really what prompted your lifelong search for kindness was some bullying that happened to you. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the reaction that people have. So can you kind of take us back there and talk about the incidents that you had and how that shaped your quest for kindness? Uh, One particular moment I remember distinctly was... First of all, my fifth birthday party, the neighbor kid came over and shoved me to the concrete. Felt like totally uncalled for, totally random. And now the language we use with educators is there's a reason for every behavior, right? So there's mm-hmm. something going on in this kid's life that compelled him to hurt me. But when you're young, the first time you experience pain like that, your brain just understands it as sort of circumstantially. It's like, well, let's do whatever we can to avoid this in the future. And that happens both when things happen to you or when you extend yourself, right? Like the first time you try to do something kind or generous or reach out to someone and you get laughed at or rejected or you fail. The brain is self-preservational in the sense that every time you experience pain, it tries to protect you from future versions of that pain. And so I think for a long time, because I'd been hurt, and you know, my story is not that different from a lot of others who grew up and, and experienced feelings of rejection or embarrassment or you know, people making you feel less than. And as a result, your natural reaction is to try to protect yourself. And I think we forget sometimes the degree to which the fear part of our brain actually prevents us from engaging in connection or compassion or kindness. And I remember in in high school, I had this big paradigm shift on what it meant to be a leader in my school. Through a series of serendipitous and purposeful events in my life, I was elected student body president going into my senior year of high school. And I went to a camp, a leadership camp where they talked about what it meant to be a student leader. And their definition of leadership was so different than what culture had told me leadership was. They said, you know, everyone's a leader because everyone has influence. All the time, we're influencing whether we like it or not. The only question is, what do we do with that influence? And this camp, their whole premise was to be the most effective and influential leader you can be your job, your task is to love people. 
and not the flimsy sort of when I feel like it kind of love, but to choose to love people even when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient. You can love people even when you don't like them. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what I want to do. I want to go back to my school and I want to make sure every single person on my campus feels the sense of belonging and safety and acceptance that I felt like I so often didn't have growing up. So what was I going to do to make that real? And the one practical idea I could come up with was I was going to create this club where every week we got together and we talked about and practiced kindness. That was my goal. That's where this whole thing kind of started. And it really has roots in this idea of I never wanted anyone to feel the hurt or the loneliness that I had. And you've done a remarkable job of you executed that in high school and then you have continued to go on and really spread this message and it's become your mission and your passion. And now you're talking about something called deep kindness. And I wondered if you could explain to us what you mean when you say deep kindness. I think there's something really interesting about doing something for long enough that you begin to see details that people overlook just because they're not paying as much. You know, it's not their job to pay that close attention to a thing. And I've talked about kindness now for, you know, over 15 years in one capacity or another. And as a result, you start to see things that feel like they you know, should be taken for granted or, or feel commonplace. And yet when you look a little bit closer, perhaps something that we think is worthwhile or is good, maybe isn't as healthy as we think it to be. So simple example, working in schools, I've had a chance to speak with 600 schools over the course of the past 10 years. And just about any school I've ever visited has some kind of value of kindness, right? It's part of their mission statement or their motto or their acronym for the year. And in just about every school I've ever visited, there's some poster advertising kindness as a worthwhile thing. Some of the most common ones are just be kind, be kind, it's free, throw kindness around like confetti. And that last one is the one I've seen most commonly most recently. Just about every school I go to has throw kindness around like confetti, which is well-intentioned. You know, it's this, this idea that we should be more generous with how we spread kindness. But I think when you pay closer attention to it, I think in, in many ways, it's actually revealing of one of the biggest issues we have in our culture around kindness is that we are implying with statements like that, that kindness is as simple or as easy or as freely given as just tossing confetti in the air. And a lot of the conversations I have with people, people are like, yeah, we do need more kindness. And it's like, why don't people give it? It's free. And I think that idea that kindness is free is actually really damaging to the practice of it. Because when we talk about something as free, our brains as humans don't assign value to it. And when we don't value something deeply, if it doesn't feel like an important metric of success or achievement in our life, then we don't actually allocate the necessary resources and time and discipline to actually practice that thing well. And so I would argue that deep kindness and the way I talk about it in the book isn't free. In fact, it'll cost us a lot of time, a lot of discomfort. It'll cost us vulnerability. It'll cost us moments of forgiveness. We will have to sacrifice sometimes energy or effort in order to give this practice of kindness that the book really argues is the type of kindness that the world needs more than the confetti kindness that we've so long sort of advertised kindness to be. And I think the book tries to qualify and say, you know, confetti kindness, which I would think of as those the high fives in the hallway or the free hugs or paying for the coffee and the, for the person behind you in line. Like those things are important, right? Don't get me wrong. Those things will bring a smile. 
But I don't think that those things will as effectively dismantle the broken systems that we have in our world. They won't heal some of the most damaged relationships in our lives, including those with ourself. All right. And that sort of kindness is what the world is craving. But if we only pitch kindness as this free thing, we're missing out on a really important and critical way of thinking about something that can have a huge impact on our life. So that's what the book tries to explore is this concept of deep kindness and, and how it's critical to heal a world that I think is in desperate need of that kind of kindness right now. It absolutely is. And how do you go about practicing deep kindness? Because we all know okay, we can do an act of kindness. As you said, we can you know, buy someone coffee in line behind us. We, there's all kinds of little things that we can do. But how do you practice deep kindness? That's the question, isn't it? How do we actually put this into our lives? Well, I think there's a couple of ways to answer it. One of them is consistency. I think that we can take an action of confetti kindness, and if done with enough disciplined consistency over time, it can become deep. Simple example is my mom who wrote a lunch note in my lunch every single day, kindergarten through 12th grade, 13 years. She would write a note in my lunchbox. That's terrific. uh, With such relentless consistency. And I think, you know, the book sometimes pushes back against those like little post-it notes that say you're great or you're awesome. But I think there's something really beautiful about small actions done so relentlessly that over time, those 30 second to two minute actions per day really add up to sometimes the most profound actions of love in our life. So one of the first things I'd offer is how do we make kindness a habit? What is something that we can do every single day that over time, even though it doesn't cost us a lot in the moment, becomes a part of who we are just through the consistent practice of it in our day-to-day actions? So a strategy I give in the book is to write above your daily to-do list to add a to-be list. So. I think our culture tells us that productivity makes us worthy in our life. And so a lot of us really like our to-do lists. In fact, we will write down things we've already done just to have the satisfaction of checking them off. And I think it's important to acknowledge we do have lots to do, right, as productive human beings in the world. But the irony, of course, and to go back to that idea of like convenience and how much time we give something, the irony is when we get busy or overwhelmed, sometimes it's things like kindness or gratitude or generosity they're the first things that go. I'm too busy for this thing. I don't have time for this thing. And so my challenge would be write out your to-do list and above it, write a one item to be list. So for today, maybe that thing is I want to be grateful, right? We all say we know gratitude's good for us. What does it look like to actually give that its daily dosage? So today to practice gratitude, to practice being a thing, I am going to do a 10-minute walk around my house and find five things I'm grateful at that I can look at within a 10-minute walk of my home. So that's something I can still check off, but it actually makes visible these otherwise abstract ideas in our life that when we get busy, we easily excuse ourselves out of them as if they are less important than everything else we have to do. Yeah, and that act of writing it down, that giving intention to your day, that just resets your brain as well. Instead of it being something that you're, it's in the back of your mind, like, oh, I'm going to practice kindness. I'm going to practice gratitude. But when you write that down, it takes it into a whole different area. And it forces you to get specific, which in the book, we, I, I talk a lot about specificity drives action and drives meaning. So to say, I'm going to be kind tomorrow is such a vague, ethereal abstraction <laughs> of a value 
it doesn't allow me to actually measure not whether I did a thing when today comes, right? So I think that the action of writing it down creates specificity, which gives me a measurable. Okay, did I do this thing or not today? And it also drives meaning, right? When I do something that's specific towards a certain person, I'm going to be kind today by calling my grandma, who I know just lost her cat, and I need to check in with her. I'm going to dedicate 15 minutes to calling my grandma today because I'm meeting a need that is specific to them. And when I think about how am I going to be kind today in an action that's going to take me 5, 10, 15 minutes, yeah, you're right. It changes the way I think about an abstract idea to make it actionable. And we know it has great benefit for the recipient, but how does practicing kindness change you, the practitioner? There's a couple of, I mean, there's so many studies on this that I find interesting and, and humbling as a human. Among them, I love this idea. They actually did studies where someone looks at a hill that feels really steep and they would describe how steep the hill looks. And then they had someone walk up next to the person and then they would describe that same hill. And people saw physically the world around them to be less daunting, right? People described the hill as less steep when they felt like they had support. I love that idea that daunting realities in our world physically feel or look less daunting to us when we have the support of someone else. The flip side of that is another study that I find fascinating is they had people go into these, these forums and they would write out stories about what's going on in their life. And then they would go in and respond to people who were struggling with other things. And what they found was that the response, actually showing support, giving kindness to others, the results on people's mental and physical well-being was actually more so than the action of asking or getting support. So giving kindness is better than even receiving it. And yet, (laughs) we still sometimes avoid it, which one of the words I stumbled upon in writing the book that I love is akrasia, which is a Greek word that translates roughly to our weakness of will, which is to say the things that we know are important and yet still don't align our actions to them. So the book talks a lot about like, why is it that we have this weakness of will? What prevents us from doing something that science and a whole lot of research tells us is really good for us? And it feels good. So what is it? Why don't we just get up and be kind all day long to every person we deal with? You know, what what is it that (laughs) prevents us from practicing kindness every moment of the day? Yeah, the book breaks it down into three categories, which is incompetence, insecurity, and inconvenience. Incompetence would be, what are the skills that I don't have, that I wasn't taught, that I wasn't raised with, that prevent me from acting in the kind of kindness that I know I want to in the moment, right? If I'm not super skilled at empathy, and sometimes I'll avoid opportunities to sit with people who are hurting. If I'm not skilled in emotional regulation, and sometimes something will, will trigger me and I'll get really angry and I'll treat people poorly based on how I'm feeling instead of how I really want to treat them. The second one is insecurity, which is like, what are the things I'm afraid of? We talked about this a bit. Like, what are those fears of rejection or failure that have been cultivated over time that actually prevent me from doing the things that I care about or believe in. You know, an example that I don't give in the book, but I think is relevant for this conversation is my grandfather had stage four pancreatic cancer a little over a year ago. And I had a circumstance where I was sitting with him where I knew it was going to be the last time we talked. I was visiting him from out of state. I knew his sickness had progressed to a degree that it was more about just making him feel comfortable. 
and I don't know if you've been in one of those situations before, Paula, but it feels mm-hmm. like there's pressure to say the right thing. Yeah. The stakes feel really high. So high, in fact, that we ended up just talking about motorcycles and really nothing of importance. So I walked out of that room and I thought to myself, you know, as a speaker, as someone that's talked about kindness literally for a decade, I should have the right words to say in moments of consequence. And I thought to myself, I'm going to film a video to express to my grandpa all the things that I love and respect about him. But I was so worried about it sounding perfect. I was so worried about failing my grandpa, not saying the right things, that it took me a few weeks to finally film it. And I finally sat down, I finally put it together, I filmed the video, I sent it off. And by the time my mom and and grandpa received it, my mom had called me and told me that my grandpa had gone into a coma and he he passed away later that night. So we didn't ever get to actually watch the video. And I, I tell you that whole story to tell you this, you know, my fear of failure which sometimes we associate in our culture with, you know, achievement or entrepreneurship or all the other things that we talk about failure around. We forget sometimes that that same fear of failure can prevent us from doing compassionate, kind things. So that's one of the things, no matter how much we believe it's important, sometimes I'm genuinely scared to do the thing. And the last one is inconvenience, which is what we've been actually alluding to a lot in this conversation of how do I make it my priority? There's this amazing article in the Wall Street Journal called, Are You As Busy As You Think? And it begs us to change the way we think about time. It says, what if you're never again allowed to say, I don't have time? What if you had to say, this is not my priority? Right? Because what we give our time to is what we value. And if we don't make time for kindness, then we're actually not honoring busyness in what it really is saying, which is I'm not prioritizing my time in the way that I say I care or value it. And that's both the personal level and you know, maybe what we don't have time for in this conversation is that cultural or systemic level, which tells people you're supposed to be busy all the time, that that's where your worthiness comes from, that's where your lovability comes from, is how much you achieve and our metrics of success currently have very little to do with compassion and everything to do with performance. I love the way that you phrased that because when, boy, talk about holding yourself accountable instead of saying I'm too busy, saying this is not my priority or I'm choosing not to prioritize this. And that takes, because it's easy to put it on the busyness. It's easy to say my work won't let me do this. My, you know, all these demands keep me from doing it. But now I'm take, I have to take responsibility of saying, yeah, that's just not what I'm choosing to do right now. And then think about sometimes the most impactful messages you've received over the past few months. Maybe it's just a simple message from someone saying, hey, this song reminds me of you or checking in, seeing how you're doing. But you think about how much that actually costs from a time perspective and you realize that it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of discipline and it's a matter of priority to reorient our day to focus on the things that matter most. Wow. So what skills do we need to be able to practice kindness better? Yeah, I think there's lots of them. Some of the ones I touch on in the book are emotional regulation which is just that idea of when I'm feeling big feelings, when I'm feeling stressed or anxious or overwhelmed or angry or hurt, our natural reaction to that is typically not kindness. And if I'm feeling those ways, how do I align my actions back to the things I've said I care about? So emotional regulation is is a skill we can develop, right? Those techniques, whether it's mindfulness or giving ourselves a moment of pause to calm down those big emotions so that we can treat people the way we want to, as opposed to the way we're feeling in the moment. That's the skill. Empathy, which is, you know, my capacity to take someone's perspective, to feel what they're feeling, to sit with them in their hurt or their pain, 
and my ability to access some of those feelings, my willingness to suffer alongside people, which sometimes requires vulnerability, which is another skill I talk about or a competency I talk about in the book, right? That vulnerability to care about something deeply, to stand up for someone or something. And I think sometimes our culture is pitched vulnerability as just our willingness to cry in public. And I argue that it's actually our willingness to care in public and to stand up for things that we care about deeply is one of the most vulnerable things we can do. Talk about forgiveness in a chapter that uh, is really challenging. And forgiveness is our ability to separate people from their behaviors, recognize that people do bad things. They're not bad people. So how do we detach those two things from each other so we can hold the person in love and then treat the behavior with the appropriate boundaries so that we can still care for the person in spite of the hurt? So all kinds of things, right? There's things that live. I talk about kindness as this sort of behavioral action that is informed by a whole concert of emotional intelligences that live beneath it. And if I don't have some of those skills that live beneath, I don't have all the tools in my toolbox. And sometimes I won't know how to address the need or the problem, not because I don't want to, but because I just don't know how. Mm -hmm. And right now we hear a lot of people just, we're all open mouthed at how unkind our world has become. And a lot of people feel like it's just, it's gotten so divisive and so hateful. Like, how do you even start turning that around? So how do we as individuals practice this kindness in a way that can start making small changes that eventually create a chain of of kindness that turns things around? Vote. (laughs) We'll start there. Vote not just at the federal level, but at state and and community levels uh, and understand what you're voting for. Think about your role in education and what your community does to educate people and do people have equal access to education in your community, in your county, in your state. I believe education is the number one pathway to a different future, a better world. What we teach today informs how we act tomorrow. And I think that's a really important thing that we need to remind ourselves of and invest in. A statement that has always stood with me comes from a student who I worked with at a summer camp where I learned that this kid woke up and got to school an hour before it started to hold the door open for other students as they walked in. And he did this for two straight years. He never missed a day. And I asked him why he did this. And he had a couple of profound responses. One of them was, you know, he said, when I first got to high school, There were so many different ways I could go, so many clubs I wanted to be involved in and sports I wanted to play and classes I cared about. He goes, but I realized really quickly that when I tried to do everything, I ended up doing nothing very well. And that resonates with me as someone who's passionate and wants to do a thousand things at once. But the reality is in order to really move the needle, we have to be thoughtful in where we allocate our attention. As one of my favorite quotes is in a bacon and eggs breakfast, you know, the pig was committed, the chicken was involved, (laughs) the hen was involved, meaning there are only a few things that we can truly, we can be involved in lots of things, but there's only a handful of things that we can truly give our full commitment to. So I would ask or argue that to take the overwhelming nature of what's going on in our world and translate it to our individual capacity, it's think about what is that one piece of the puzzle that you can be committed to deeply? What's the door that you can hold so consistently that that becomes a part of your day-to-day life. And then you move on to the next thing, right? Build in the habit, go so fervently after one thing, chip away at it, and then move on to the next one. Otherwise, we get so overwhelmed with everything that as we look around the world, we end up doing nothing very well. Or 
for some of us, we end up doing nothing at all. Such excellent advice and insight. Houston, I thank you for coming on the show today because this book is really, it's timely. It's really what we need right now. And we all need to be reading it and learning how to practice kindness in a whole different way, a more meaningful way. I know when we come back, I'm going to tell the listeners how they can get a free download of your journal from our website. Mm -hmm. And as we let you go, what is the one thing that you hope everyone takes away from listening to you today? That our paradigms drive our practices. The way we think about something in our brain is going to affect how we act with it in the world. And I ask us all to check our definition of kindness. And if it doesn't require us to be a little bit uncomfortable, a bit more empathetic, to sacrifice something in our life, then I think we have work to do. And may that work translate into a more compassionate world. That was Houston Craft talking about kindness. To learn more about his new book, Deep Kindness, A Revolutionary Guide for the Way We Think, Talk, and Act in Kindness, or to download a free 30-day kindness journal, just visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one. Mm -hmm.